Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Since its rise in the late 1960s, Peru's Shining Path movement has provoked serious questions among scholars and policymakers about how a small number of communist ideologues came to see themselves as the vanguard of global political revolution and created a movement which resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of their fellow citizens. Today, we're talking to Miguel Lacerna, Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, whose research is focused on the relationship between culture, memory, and political violence in 20th century Latin America, and who's working as a fellow this year at the Center examining the rise and the path of the Shining Path. Welcome, Miguel. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a bit about the inception of The Shining Path, sort of frame the history for us and perhaps talk about the goals of The Shining Path as well at their inception? The Shining Path started as a a splinter group from the Peruvian Communist Party, and it could trace its origins all the way back to really to 1962 when a sort of uh, bookish philosophy professor, uh, rookie professor, arrived to this Andean town of Ayacucho and started teaching at this university, which was a university that had been recently reopened, actually, after having been shut down since the 19th century. It was a public university. Most of the students there were uh, first-generation college students. Many of them had never had any kind of uh, experience with academics, and so they were really excited to be at this new university and have this opportunity to study there. So Abimael Guzman, this philosophy professor, who, when he arrived, he was already a communist. He, he realized quickly that the Communist Party in Ayacucho was in shambles and that he thought it could be a lot more militant than it was. So he took a trip, a couple of trips, actually, to China, and uh, he was really taken by uh, Mao's revolution there. And he, together with a woman who would end up becoming his wife, Augusta La Torre, they, they decided to form the splinter group of the Shining Path, and called that the true Peruvian Communist Party, and it was one that was ready to radicalize and mobilize these students. And so they took uh, a bunch of students and professors and other teachers from the area, and they formed this uh, guerrilla movement called the Shiny Path, and they went underground through the second half of the 1970s, and they kind of resurfaced in 1980 to launch their insurgency. So you tell the story through the lenses of, uh, kind of novelistic lenses, of eight main characters. Why did you choose that sort of methodology for telling the story? And, and tell us a little bit about the characters. Yeah, so I'm working with uh, my colleague Oren Starn at Duke University on this project. And we had been talking uh, just about how there hasn't really been a comprehensive history of The Shining Path, despite there being uh, numerous studies on The Shining Path. There's not just really a narrative history. So we decided that now would be a good time to, to actually write this story. And we wanted to do it in a way that was very accessible to a lay audience. We didn't want to just write for other scholars, other uh, humanists even. We wanted this to be something that we could contribute academically to a larger conversation about the Shining Path War in Peru and the Andes. But we also wanted people who just had heard maybe some things about the Shining Path or about the, the Peruvian conflict or who were just interested in traveling to the Andes, for example, to really understand this episode in Peruvian history. And so we decided that one good way to do this would be to follow these characters who, uh, and some of them are very well known in Peru, but some of them even in Peru aren't very well known. So there's some large figures, but also some smaller ones whose lives intersected through this war in sometimes unanticipated ways. And we thought that this would be kind of a nice uh, lens through which to view this really complicated history. 
What went wrong with the Shining Path? After all, about 70,000 Peruvians perished as a result. So what happened from the sort of idealistic uh, beginning to uh, such a drastic and tragic culmination? That's a great question. It's one that I've asked myself many times. I'm not sure I have a good answer to. Um, the Shining Path, uh, which is still has some vestiges of the Shining Path exist to this day, they would argue that nothing actually went wrong other than that they didn't win. But in terms of how this became this very violent war, uh, a lot of things contributed to this. One is that the Peruvian state, through the police and through the military, they got involved in late 1982 and immediately started committing all types of atrocities in the countryside. And so this gave the Shining Path kind of cover to actually step up their own violence. So before 1982, a lot of the violence that we saw in places like Ayacucho in the Andes uh, was very selective. So they would go into a community, for example, and they would ask the peasants, who were mostly Quechua-speaking farmers, who are the bad seeds here? Who are the cattle rustlers? Who are the wife beaters? Who are the, the abusive uh, landlords? And those would be the people that they would actually select for their sort of popular trials, which where they would bring somebody out in front of the main square and maybe give them some uh, lashes of the whip and send them on their way. But after the military got involved, then you would see the Shining Path respond by actually trying to form its own guerrilla army. So before that, it was kind of these outings, these excursions, as I mentioned, but they tried to put together an actual army. And then when the Shining Path puts its army together, it's also confronted with a peasant militia that doesn't want to support the, uh, the rebels. And so now we have all of a sudden a civilian militia, you have an army, a counterterrorism police force, and now a guerrilla army that are all clashing, and this is a recipe for disaster in a lot of cases. If we think about the sort of general indigenous population, are they victimized by the Shining Path? Or are they participants in the Shining Path? Or is this just a sort of complicated situation? Of course, I'm going to say that it's complicated, but I do think that's a, it's an appropriate question because early on, we have a lot of scholars and, and journalists and other people who, who were really looking at this as a story of victimization, of the indigenous people being caught in the middle and really the ones who are between the, the sword and the wall, as the phrase goes in, in Spanish. But in time, we've, we've realized that it was a lot more complicated than that and that there was a significant portion of peasants, particularly in this early period in 1980 to 1982, that were actually actively supporting the Shining Path, particularly because it could actually um, bring to justice some of these, of these local people who had been getting away with, sometimes in some cases, getting away with murder for years. And so people actively supported the Shining Path, but then we see in time, as the Shining Path starts to show its teeth, then we see uh, a lot of people really resisting the Shining Path, and the Shining Path responded to this with a lot more violence and committed many atrocities as well. And how about the role of women in this insurgency? Is, is there anything peculiar historically or interesting historically about that role? Absolutely. The role of women in this insurgency is, is incredibly uh, powerful. The number two leader in the Shining Path was Augusta La Torre, who was happened to be the wife of the leader, Abimele Guzman, but she was somebody who influenced a lot of the decisions that Guzman made and that the Shining Path made. She formed her own women's revolutionary movement, which was a section within the Shining Path. They actually um, really emphasized women's issues and the role that women could play in this popular revolution. 
And uh, the number three person in The Shining Path was also another woman, Elena Paraguirre, who ends up, uh, by an interesting twist of, of the story, to, to become the wife of Abimel Guzman as well. So there's this interesting tension where, on the one hand, The Shining Path is empowering women by giving them real, actual leadership roles. But on the other hand, it's a movement that has the maximum leader, the maximum authority is a male, and the people who, who have power happen to have these sort of intimate relationships with them. But the women were very prominent in the movement all the way from, from the leadership all the way down to the rank and file. And, and by some estimates, as many as 50% of the guerrilla fighters themselves were women. So what's the lingering influence of the Shining Path? How do we see the Shining Path's influence today, both in Peru, and I know you're working on uh, its influence globally as well. Right. Yeah, the Shining Path actually continues to exist to this day. And right now, it's there are sort of two forms of the Shining Path. Officially, the movement has never been defeated. So it exists and continues to have a, a guerrilla front that operates in the jungle in Peru right now, uh, which makes it now that the FARC has uh, actually laid down arms, uh, one of the longest uh, lasting guerrilla insurgencies in Latin America. But this militarized wing of the Shining Path differs from the original uh, wing that supported Abimel Guzman. Guzman has now been captured, as we talk about in the book, uh, the dramatic episode that led to his capture. But also, he, after he was captured, he continued to try to uh, kind of keep some of the major platforms that he had for a, a new improving society. And so there's now a wing of the Shining Path that supports becoming uh, a legal political party. But there's a lot of resistance to that in Peru to this day as people overwhelmingly think that the Shining Path has kind of shown its true colors and therefore doesn't have a right to become uh, involved in politics. And so this is a, a debate about what is the role of these defeated guerrillas in the 21st century. And it's one that, that we've been debating not just in Peru, but as we've seen in cases like Colombia and elsewhere. And how about beyond uh, South America? Is the Shining Path, uh, does it play a heroic role in other movements? The Shining Path in the 1980s and 1990s was, was very mysterious in, in that not a lot of people really fully understood the movement. It was very secretive. It was hard for outsiders to really even penetrate their movement or even to actually have access to some of their members. Abimel Guzman himself only gave one interview during his 12 years where he was launching this insurgency, and he gave that only to the Shining Path's own mouthpiece journal. And so there was really a lot of confusion about what this movement was like. And so because of that, it made it easy for people in other parts of the world to see them as a, this kind of uh, revolutionary force for good. And so they did have support in, in other parts of the world. We saw in Sweden, um, there was a, a sort of exile community of militants who operated there and, and tried to spread their own propaganda. But even at universities like Berkeley and, and other places in the United States, especially in the 90s, when it, in the early 90s and late 80s, whenever there was a professor giving a talk about the shiny path, you invariably have one student or a group of students step up and, and actually try to support and defend what the Shining Path was doing. But I think in time, people started to realize that this movement was, was far more violent than anybody had imagined. And once the Truth Commission came out in 2001 and issued its report saying that, that nearly 70,000 people were killed and more than half of them uh, were the responsibility of the guerrillas, then people started to rethink their position on, on them. We've been speaking to Professor Miguel Lacerna from the University of North Carolina about his fellowship project on the Shining Path at the National Humanities Center. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.